Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of CCT Live, the Cape Cod Times live Facebook news broadcast brought to you every day, every Thursday at 9 a.m. I'm Patrick Casting, news editor here, and I'm joined today in his first appearance on CCT Live by reporter Doug Frazier. Uh, Doug covers the towns of Harwich and Chatham, as well as fisheries and other environmental stories for us. We'll dig into one of the big stories uh, this week that Doug covered about state grants to help towns prepare for climate change, as well as another story that you wrote, Doug, for Memorial Day. Um, we'll also talk a bit about efforts to continued efforts to honor Yarmouth Police Sergeant Sean Gannon, who was killed in April in the line of duty, and a new research center on Nantucket. And look ahead at another story you're working on. You've been busy uh, this week, Doug. Uh, uh, about Red Tide. Um, you can take a look back at our past episodes and follow along at home by going to our website or checking us out on all our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. As always, plenty to talk about, so we'll get right to it. Um, going back to Memorial Day weekend, uh, which seems like uh, it came and went pretty fast, but we had a lot of coverage that, that uh, our reporters were out doing uh, day, day of Memorial Day, but also leading up to it. And one of those was a story you did about a flag uh, that a local man has uh, that served as a reminder. What, what was that story about, Doug? Well, he had, uh, the, the, the man is uh, Norman Poitras, and uh, he founded or helped found the restaurant uh, Poits in, in East Ham. He, um, he, he and his wife took a trip uh, in 1988 uh, out to Hawaii. They went to um, the uh, USS Arizona Memorial, happened to see a fl- uh, that they were changing a flag out that was uh, a little bit worn and just asked uh, if what they were going to do with the flag and they were going to um, uh, throw it out essentially. Well, I believe they burned the flag and they, um, and so he asked if he could, uh, it just, uh, the, the site and, and the, the, the uh, 900 sailors who are uh, still interred there uh, that um, inspired him to like, just say like, I want to take a memorial back. And so he, uh, he, he purchased the flag and this was before they, um, my understanding is this is before they actually started selling flags. They do that now. They fly it from that mast and and uh, and and people can buy it. But um, uh, he just uh, it, it just, you know, touched him. And uh, and he's kept that flag all this time. He takes it out every once in a while. He flew it at his restaurant and put the plaque there just to educate people to sacrifices of that the military and veterans in particular uh, make uh, every day. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting that he, he said that, that it was, you know, as kids were waiting in line for burgers and hot dogs, the plaque and the flag was a way for them to learn about the USS Arizona. Had you, have you ever been to Hawaii and, and seen the, the memorial there? No, I a, a brief layover on my way to Fiji yeah. once, but uh, didn't... Uh I, I haven't stop. either. It sounds, from what how he describes it, it, sounds pretty incredible, and you can kind of imagine the emotion of being there. Uh, and again, he didn't, well, you can see the whole ship. It's, yeah, it's just below the water. That's what he was saying. It's like forty feet of water, yep. and you can see the ship there. Yep. And again, there were I, I think you said in seventeen uh, eleven hundred or so sold, uh, 
it was a Navy people who had died on that ship. Navy and Marines died died on the ship, and uh, and around nine hundred are still there. Yeah, yeah. and so that's obviously uh, essentially a, a grave for those soldiers. So meant meant a lot to him, and and certainly was a nice story to have on Memorial Day. We had a lot of other coverage on Memorial Day that everybody can take a look at uh, online. But it was it was an interesting story to me again because this was somebody who didn't serve. It was a flag, and he said, you know, you said that didn't fly in battle, mm-hmm. but they're still serving as these reminders of the sacrifice that people made well he did actually he, he served not in battle but yep. he, he was uh he was located on the uh on the home front uh right towards the end of the korean war and uh so um so he did have a military uh uh background but uh but not in combat but he could certainly appreciate the sacrifice that yeah it was only by made. chance that he didn't go into battle because they, right. they, he was on his honeymoon and is basically he missed the call to orders yeah they got, got yep. called out yep. um uh from that to another story of of honoring uh somebody who was lost in the line of duty uh in this case uh, Yarmouth police sergeant uh, Sean Gannon who our viewers will certainly remember on April 12th was killed uh, while helping to serve a, an arrest warrant in Marston's Mills. Um, and, you know, almost immediately after his death, there were uh, blue blue and, you know, black ribbons that were uh, wrapped around poles. And, and I remember seeing people going up and down, uh, putting them on every pole as a, as a tribute to uh, Sergeant Gannon's uh, service and, and, and honoring him in his death. Um, and those, those ribbons were still out there. And at this point, the Yarmouth police department had posted something to Facebook, uh, the other day that basically said, you know, it's time to start taking these down. And, and you can imagine they're kind of starting to look a little tattered, weather worn. And, and there's obviously a concern that that shows a, a lack of respect. So essentially they said, if people can help us by starting to take these down, that's not to say that the ongoing uh, outpouring of, of uh, tributes to uh, Sergeant Cannon doesn't continue. They retired his squad car, uh, which is a, a, a Ford Police Interceptor 2013. Um, it essentially is getting traded in. I know the you know, question came up, what does that mean when you retire the car? But it's getting traded in and the number is not going to be used again. So it's not like the car won't go somewhere, but but the number itself will never be used again. Um, and then it, it, it actually, uh, its last ride was, was in Boston during a, a 14th annual run to remember, which is a, a event um, that uh, is a tribute to fallen law officers and first responders. Um, and then the Yarmouth Police Department's going on with uh, attempting to make some changes. Um, and they say they're worried about violent offenders uh, as the person who allegedly uh, shot and killed uh, Sergeant Gannon uh, was he had a long criminal history and and they're saying we really need to do something that about that at first there was a lot of focus on judges I know right afterwards um, but the chief in in Yarmouth has now said that we need to look at this a little broader parole probation and that sort of thing and make sure that people in his mind uh, who are violent offenders aren't uh, you know easily released onto the streets and and he actually said they should be segregated from the rest of, of everybody so there's a lot to go forward there's a lot of efforts at the state house including a bill that by Vinnie de Macedo, uh, which would require a 10 year minimum sentence for anyone convicted of attempted murder when they're shooting at a police officer 
uh, that's still up there. The state house, as you know, Doug, is someplace where bills and amendments come forward and they go to conference committee and there's a kind of meandering process to get them there. But it sounds like there's some momentum for some change. It's always a question as to what that's going to be in the long run. And it has to go through a lot of different interest uh, uh, groups to get to that. Another amendment would add $2 to every rental car transaction, and that money would go to municipal police training, which is something else that Chief Fredrickson in Yarmouth was really uh, big on after uh, Sergeant Cannon's death and before Sergeant Cannon's death, as a matter of fact. So th- those, uh, those outpourings continue. Um, another uh, story, and I'll go through this real quickly because I want to get to the big story, which is uh, about the state grants that you had written about this week, Doug. Uh, this new research center dedicated on Nantucket. I've, I've never been to the Maria Mitchell Association's, uh, uh, I guess it was a library that was out there. Had you ever been out there? Have you ever seen it? Uh, I've I've never seen it, actually. I mean, I've been out to Nantucket plenty of times, but yeah. not seen that. No, yeah. no. Mariah Mitchell, I, I was an heard about it. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd heard about it, yeah. too. We have it in our paper every once in a while. Sure. Mentions, I know. Sounds our, pretty interesting it, to me. It really does. Reporter Ethan Genter does a, a bit on the uh-huh. islands. And, and uh, I mean, the interesting part was that they collect all these species over the last hundred or so years. They've been collecting species, uh, and it's kind of like a biological uh, – it sounds really cool, actually, like hmm. a biological uh, – uh, reservoir for all these species. Uh-huh. Uh, so now I almost want to go, even as I'm talking about this. Um, but the association had had been out there. They have this 10,000-piece biological collection of plants and animals, all from Nantucket, found on Nantucket. And uh, they're now going to have a new space. Uh, it was a library. I guess it used to be Mariah Mitchell's father's schoolhouse. The, the association mm-hmm. bought it in 1919. So there's a lot of history there. I'm sure people on Nantucket know that history inside and out. But it used to be a library. They've put uh, uh, more than a million dollars in four years into kind of renovating it into this space uh, uh, where they can have uh, these species. And I guess every Friday, maybe you and I can take a trip out there. Every Friday going forward, they'll bring some of the species up. They're otherwise kind of off limits to the public in the basement, but they'll bring some of the species up so you can take a look. And they say they keep having new species come in all the time, which is, I mean, hard to believe. Uh, that an island like Nantucket, kind of small, that you would have new things being found. But I guess you hear about that all the time, that we really don't know everything that's out there at this point. Well, there there are islands off Nantucket where there are rare species that are only confined to that island itself. You yeah, know, you've been so. to some of them. No man, yeah. Was it No Man's Land that you went out uh, to? No, it's the... Oh, no, um, you can't go to No Man's Land or else you get... Yeah, out. that's Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. No, on Nantucket, it's... Uh, well, now Muskegon? I'm gonna. Now I'm gonna. Yeah, Muskegon yeah. has has a like a meadow vole that I believe that it's only endemic to that particular island. Yeah, and I, I know Ethan again had written I think about a headless centipede that that is <laughs> off one of the either one of those islands or on Nantucket. I can't remember yeah. which. So uh, quirky species. I think you and Ethan share a love of yeah. science and quirky yeah. species yeah. Uh, stories. So they, they it's open now. Uh, they're going to be using it for kind of lectures and they have a new classroom and research space. Uh, I think they already had their interns uh, in training uh, at the research center this week. So they're saying, you know, they're doing things that they couldn't have done even uh, a week ago. Um, so an interesting place to probably go visit, especially on Fridays, because that's when they bring up the the, the species so you can take a look. Um, and uh, again, keeps these animals that are actually dead, keeps the the uh, uh, species uh, and, and the knowledge of those species alive. Big uh, story uh, this week. You were at uh, Nauset Beach for a big announcement. What was it about and, and what were state officials talking about? So there were 
plenty of state officials and town officials there. Um, and uh, Secretary of uh, Energy and Environment uh, Matthew Beaton was there. He he uh, pretty much introduced a, a series of grants that have been working their way through uh, the the state. Uh, Charlie uh, Baker basically uh, told um, him and his staff, you know, they he wanted to. Uh, give towns more ability after this winter to prepare for uh, the the types of uh, climate change adaptations that they would need uh, in the future. And so this is the uh, second round of these grants called uh, Municipal Vulnerability, I'm sorry, Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program Grants. Um, these are the first phase where they, where the, the grant subsidized municipal planning to sort of find where their vulnerabilities are, look for, uh, try to create a, a, uh, an action list and prioritize it. And then there's a second round of grants called action grants that uh, run as high as uh, $400,000 that help to implement the, the priority list. So for the CAPE, uh, it was, um, I mean, I think the program itself was $2.16 million this, this particular round of uh, planning grants. Uh, the Cape received uh, Cape and Islands received uh, two hundred and eighty four thousand dollars, I believe, of that money. Um, but uh, when I talked to uh, the Cape Town officials, you know, they were encouraged that this didn't look like it was going to be a program that was going to go away. You know, so the f- the uh, environmental bond bill that uh, that Charlie Baker proposed a little earlier in the year that's working its way through the legislature, one point four billion has three hundred million. Um, towards uh, climate adaptation uh, programs and um, and 50 million of that is going to go towards this municipal vulnerability preparedness program. Uh, that means that um, it would be probably double what this program is right now and it's it guarantees it over the next five years. Talking to uh, Representative Peak and um, she basically felt and and Secretary Beaton basically felt that that this was going to go through the legislature, that there was a lot of momentum for it. It wasn't going to die in committee. Um, they're looking to get it done before July. And that basically guarantees this help for towns going forward for at least the, this uh, five-year uh, span. Now, the, the towns themselves said they wanted to, um, you know, it's hard to do that kind of uh, planning that sets up climate change initiatives because, you know, people are, the legislative body, um, the town meeting is a lot, is really focused more on near-term things. And long-term things like uh, climate change are things that, you know, may lose out to things like a fire engine or additional personnel or whatever. These grants here help towns to, to, to get these projects to a level where they can sell it. The town officials can, uh, you know, make the case to town meeting that look, this is what we found. These are this is these are the projects we'd like to do, and um, and you know, even the action grants won't cover the cost of those projects, but will but will help towns to leverage more money to get these uh, projects done. And we saw this past winter that those projects are important. You know, I mean, there there was uh, flooding in Provincetown, flooding in Chatham. These were known areas. You know, they'd done. In the case of Provincetown, they've done some work to to say like, well, these are the weak spots. They but actually knew like where the water might go. They knew I mean, they knew the what, what's called the inundation pathways. Yeah. They knew, 
you know, but that next step was a little harder to do, you know. And so um, I think, you know, towns now after this winter are looking at doing that kind of uh, work. And well, it's um, interesting you talk about that, that balancing of priorities. And we had talked about this previously a lot when it comes to wastewater, which is another big ticket item mm-hmm. in terms of managing wastewater. And towns were going through that same process of saying, well, do I, do I invest in a you know, $300 million project for the next 40, 50 years? Or do I invest in that fire engine and that new fire station, which, again, people see as an immediate, you can see the, the fire station go up in front of you, or, or you can see the fire engine mm-hmm. on the road. Sounds like that same sort of thing. I thought it was interesting. You had talked to Steve McKenna, uh, who's the Cape and Islands Regional Coordinator for the Office of Coastal Zone Management, and he said he had seen a shift, actually, when it comes to water issues and climate change issues, kind of more towards towns coming to him talking climate change. Yeah, he'd noticed that, um, and I think um, I think that's been, you know, those have been the issues that towns have dealt with. Uh, it costs a lot of money to to repair, you know, to, to pump out streets, to, to, uh, to, you know, try and get businesses back uh, up and running after water has invaded their space is, uh, you know, that, that's your kind of part of your economic engine. It's your, in, we don't have many industries. So to lose things like, you know, Provincetown, the West end of Provincetown's commercial district is a big deal. Yep. And, uh, and I think that, that now towns are starting to see, you know, that uh, this is going to be a concern going forward. You know, they, they see, they hear the complaints from people who are cut off for days at a time when, uh, when flooding occurs, you know, they, they hear from people whose basements unexpectedly flood, you know, and I think, uh, you know, towns are asking for help. The state has realized that, that they need that help, but it didn't hurt as some of the legislators pointed out that, flooding occurred in Boston and yeah. that, and, and that it occurred the, those uh, sunny day floods where it's a high, uh, a high tide and you're walking along the waterfront and it's underwater. I mean, that gives you an indication that the infrastructure that was built no longer matches sea rise. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, when you see the aquarium T-stop flood, you, you you can't help but think back to like you know what happened with uh, Hurricane Sandy and Superstorm Sandy or uh, and 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 the flooding that happened in New York. So yeah, and if that had come up this way, taken a different turn, sure, we would have had a lot of those similar type of effects. And and we're obviously on the Cape, particularly vulnerable to the to the waters around us. But like you said, when you have a city like Boston, where they were just talking yesterday about the uh, efficacy of of building a wall to, to block off the city and saying, listen, that's that's a step too far. But they do have to do things when the city of Boston starts having to deal with it. You have probably some more impetus for these statewide programs and for this money to be uh, spent. And interesting, politically, where you have a, a Republican, very popular Republican governor, and you have a you know largely Democrat-controlled legislature who are on the same page in, in regards to a lot of this stuff, you can start to see these programs go forward, whereas in other states, perhaps, or even nationally, you don't see that kind of uh, coordination that's possible when, when the two sides of the aisle are on the same page. Um, so, and these grants aren't, these, these initial grants aren't huge, but as you said, they kind of set up the, the process where towns can apply for larger grants to actually do some of that work. Right. And of course, the program with more funding now, the program increased 
this year over last year by quite a bit. Um, I think it was that they they always call it a hundredfold increase, but it went from about five hundred thousand to around five million now. And and so with this environmental bond bill, the math kind of tells you that it's going to double from that. You know, fifty million over the next five. So um, that. If that remains intact, I mean, that's a pretty substantial, you know, increase. And I think the way towns, I mean, towns face like some big expenses right now. So what does $20,000 here or or even $100,000, I think the maximum grant here was about $34,000 or whatever for Mm -hmm. Bonstable. Most of the grants were in that fifteen dollars to $20,000 range. But towns feel like, you know, there's two things. One, they feel the state's listening and they're responding. And two, they just feel like um, with limited funds out there, why any, any help is, is appreciated, really you know, you and I, and teacher's position, you know, with one of those that you would other you know, you uh, and, not get rid of. And, and, kinda... and basically they can, it, it helps them to hire a consultant or somebody that, would be able to give them what their staff can't, you know, and, and can, and, and actually has the time to do it versus a staffer who might, you know, have to do other things and does have to do other things. So, so that those are the kinds of things that uh, towns look to the state to like give them just a little bit more to get them to the level where they can, uh, plan, bring something before town meeting, get additional funding and say to town meeting, look, the state is also contributing here. And it, it helps to, to I, I don't want to say sell the project, but it helps to give people a bit of a comfort factor that the state's on board as well. Support for it, yeah. Yeah. And again, the our, our big argument, you pay now or you pay later to a certain extent. And for anybody uh, who's new to CCT Live, who maybe is coming back from their winter home, uh, the, the storms that we were talking about certainly were uh, pretty dramatic. And you can go online and, and search for, you know, Nor'easter, Cape Cod Times, and, and pretty much find a lot of our coverage there, which you were certainly involved in a lot of that, Doug. Um, you're also involved in a story that you're working on in the, that's going to come out hopefully in the next couple of days about uh, red tide and what some scientists are doing. Just a real quick synopsis of, of what that's going to be about or what you did to get that story. So red, red tide has it just, just to, for people who don't know, it's, it, it is, uh, there's various types of red tides and people who go down to Florida, see the red tide down there. It's, it, it's somewhat different here. The um, Alexandrium uh, algae cause, um, they have they produce a neurotoxin that blocks your um, respiratory um, muscles from from functioning. Well, that you know you could potentially die. That doesn't That's, sound good. Yeah, uh, so there they, you know there aren't that many deaths from it, but um, but it, it it does happen. And so the state closes down large areas of shell fishing and aquaculture in order to like be uh, safe so that no one does die you and know that's the conduit is through shellfish you eat it with shellfish that's been the toxin gets concentrated in the shellfish meats because they feed on the algae which become quite abundant um and they multiply really fast so uh and it usually happens kind of right around memorial day that we see um cells uh of alexandrium coming down from maine but we have homegrown ones and Salt Pond is one of those areas. And if you tr- drive by Salt Pond, you basically 
uh, in say late March to like maybe May, you will see this little chicken coop out there in the middle of the pond floating on a raft. It doesn't look like much, but it houses some of the most sophisticated um, uh, instruments uh, for detection uh, and actually analysis of uh, plankton that exist in the world. And, and these instruments are basically things like a, an automated microscope that can uh, literally photograph individual cells. There's a, what they call a lab in a can, which is uh, essentially does uh, chemical tests and genetic testing on these particular organisms. And there's uh, just a, an environmental monitor that's out there as well. You would never know it's there. Uh, the scientists go out every, you know, uh, probably about 20 or 30 times a season to like check on, check on things themselves. But this runs 24 hours, seven days a week for that whole the season. Robots and they've, they've, they've made some, you know, interesting discoveries because and, of that. And it's a great tease for your story that's coming and everybody mm-hmm. can check it out uh, in the paper uh, in print and capecodtimes.com uh, and it'll really be a good explainer of that and, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Doug, for being on first time uh, uh, debut session here. Uh, really appreciate it. Everybody, tell your friends uh, if you're, uh, again, back, feel free to uh, come back uh, next Thursday at 9 a.m. for an, another CCT Live uh, share the link. Uh, feel free to get in touch with us, Doug, with you got any story tips or ideas. Um, all our emails are available at capecodtimes.com. We're where news starts on Cape Cod. Till next week, uh, have a good morning and good luck. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.